0: When I first thought about this series of broadcasts, I envisioned maybe a dozen episodes to carry us from the very beginning of what became Bob Dylan through to the album Time Out of Mind, which was released in 1997. This is episode 12 of a Bob Dylan primer, and we're not going to get quite to Time Out of Mind in this episode. And the plan now is to cover right up to Dylan's current moment in this series, so there'll be a few more than a dozen episodes when we get there. I'm not sure now why I originally planned to stop after Time Out of Mind, which is more than 20 years old at this point, but part of my decision to push past that record is the newfound appreciation that's taken hold for me when considering Dylan's output since that record. If you're not already intrigued and held by much of Dylan's work over the past 20 years, hopefully you'll continue along this ride and share a similar appreciation by the time we're done. This is a Bob Dylan Primer episode 12, Beginning the New Beginning. So what was Bob Dylan when we last heard from him? In episode 11, we looked at a period of time where by most accounts, Dylan was in his least dynamic and least creative period. As I always try to point out, there were certainly moments of musical grace and some lyrics that only Dylan could have written, but overall the mid-to-late 1980s were not Dylan's most transcendent moment, either on record or in his live performances. In a lot of ways, Dylan seemed to be following the trajectory of many of the great and even not-so-great artists of the 60s and 70s, where they flamed brightly for a brief or extended moment and then transition into a kind of slow fading of intensity, with maybe a flare-up or two thrown in to keep things interesting. The ones who survived continued in many cases to make sometimes great music, but the later material usually can't compare to the earlier music in terms of inspiration and discovery. But for Dylan, right at this moment when he seems to be at his low point, his nadir, we're talking about the spring of 1988, two things kick in and their effect directly and indirectly seem to propel Dylan into a different place, a new place where he's able to start making steps that will lead to an almost miraculous creative reinvention. And the first of those two things was hooking up with George Harrison, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynne in The Traveling Wilburys, and also starting to tour in a different way. We talked a little about The Traveling Wilburys in the last episode, and I think Being around those guys was a great, energizing influence for all of them, and especially Dylan, and I think it was fun, which may have been something that was missing a little for Dylan in the years just prior to then. So being a part of this supergroup seems to have had a very positive creative effect on Dylan. I want to talk a little about this tour that began in 1988. It was a phase of playing live that has come to be labeled the never-ending tour, which is a phrase that Dylan has publicly disavowed. He really doesn't like labels of any kind, and as he has correctly pointed out, everything ends sometime. But basically what the phrase is referring to is the fact that Dylan went out on the road in June 1988 and has been basically out there on a semi-permanent basis for more than 30 years now playing more than 3,000 live shows during that period. From 1962 to 1987, which covers, you know, Dylan's so-called heyday, he played roughly 700 concerts over that 25-year span. Since then, 3,000 shows, just to put things in perspective. The tours since 1988 have mostly been fairly stripped-down affairs with smallish bands, and Dylan has played all sorts of venues from clubs, to casinos, to minor league baseball parks, to concert halls and arenas. It's hard to think of another artist from the rock or pop or even classical genres who has been as generous as a performer. It's true that Dylan doesn't usually speak to the audience, he doesn't walk through the crowd and shake hands, he doesn't ask for sing-alongs, and many nights he even neglects to introduce the band. But those things aren't on Dylan's path. He has chosen to put out his songs, an ever-changing array of them, in the best and most honest way he knows how. And if you're a Dylan fan, that's something for which one can be extremely grateful. Later in this episode, I'm going to talk about a concert from 1996, where Dylan pulled off a feat of onstage warmth and openness that will definitely leave you impressed and amused. So I think that this moment in 1988, as Dylan hooks up with his fellow Wilburys and also undertakes what will become a life that rarely leaves the touring road, this moment begins the evolution of what's really a completely new approach or method to creating work, and also a new way of presenting work to the public via live performances. And that reinvigoration that started in 1988 has carried Dylan up to the present day, more than 30 years down the road. Just to mark time for a moment, remember that from Blown in the Wind to Blood on the Tracks was about 12 to 13 years, and from Blood on the Tracks to Down in the Groove was about the same. So that's 25, 26 years right there. And then from O Mercy, which we're going to get to in a minute, from O Mercy to the present day has been 30 more years of work. So let's step to 1989. Dylan has begun this long adventure in touring, but he's taking a short break. And suddenly, during this break, he starts writing a handful of new songs, mostly just lyrics on paper, without any music at first. And Dylan seems to be aware that these songs represent something new, maybe the entry to an entirely new way of working, or a new phase in his career. And according to Dylan himself, Writing in his quasi-factual memoir, Chronicles, Dylan has Bono over to his house, Bono of the band U2, and Bono suggests that Dylan use Daniel Lanois as a producer to record these new songs and make a new record. Lanois had produced U2's Joshua Tree record in 1987, so he was kind of the new super producer on the block at that moment. A word about Dylan's memoir, Chronicles, here. The book came out in 2004, and it's a very entertaining read. A lot of the details in the book, stated as fact, seem to have been made up or heavily colored by Dylan's imagination. But in a wonderfully Dylan-esque magic trick, the book feels very much like the truth, the whole truth. It feels extremely honest. So Dylan takes Bono's advice and calls up Daniel Lanois, and eventually they meet up in New Orleans to record. And what seems pretty clear is that this is the first time that Dylan has allowed a producer to be a true collaborator, or maybe a better word is facilitator, on the recording of new songs. Jerry Wexler was definitely a powerfully strong influence on the slow train coming sessions, but that had more to do with enforcing a certain discipline and musical professionalism to the tracks. The record Dylan made with Lanois is called Oh Mercy, and Dylan seems to be allowing Lanois to push him around and pull him around and twist the sound around, so that Lanois's contribution to the finished product is significant, I think. Oh Mercy was released in September 1989, and it was well received critically and also sold quite a bit better than the few previous Dylan albums. I'd say it's an album without a single throwaway. All of the songs are strong and memorable. All in all, a wonderful record, and I think, even though it got a lot of positive reaction when it came out, many people have never really appreciated the record. And I think that's for the same reason that so many Dylan albums are underappreciated, usually because they don't fit an existing pattern that people are expecting. I think our energy for discovery has been heavily challenged by the distractions of the contemporary universe. Really, the only two Dylan albums since the 1960s that have been venerated in the time of their release are Blood on the Tracks in 1975 and Time Out of Mind in 1997, but it's not clear that those are Dylan's strongest works over that time. Those two albums are held close by more people than other albums since the 70s, but there's an awful lot of good music on many other releases from Dylan during that time. It's really hard to pick out the strongest or signature songs from Oh Mercy. Ring Them Bells, Most of the Time, What Good Am I, and Shooting Star are all powerhouse ballads, but really, it's a strong record through and through. And, as is his wont, Dylan left four terrific outtakes off the record. Two of those songs, Born in Time, and God Knows, made the follow-up record, Under the Red Sky, which we'll talk about in a minute. Two other great songs recorded for Oh Mercy but left off the album and only released later are Series of Dreams and Dignity. All of these tracks can be heard on the playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer Episode 12. I realize not everybody has Spotify, but that's the best way I know now to consolidate songs and make them available. Of course, there are other sources for streaming music. There's also CDs, cassettes, and good old vinyl if you play records on a turntable after oh mercy a year passes and then in september 1990 dylan releases another album of all new material called under the red sky you'd think if you were using mortal logic as opposed to dylan logic that dylan would have stuck with daniel Lanois and a setup similar to what resulted in dylan's best album in years but no no for the next record Dylan went to Los Angeles and used mostly a grab bag of studio and superstar musicians including David Crosby, George Harrison, Bruce Hornsby, Elton John, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, among many others. Under the Red Sky has ten tracks, two of which, Born in Time and God Knows, were written for the previous album, Oh Mercy, but didn't make the cut then, as we just mentioned. Most of the remaining eight songs on Under the Red Sky are some kind of Derivation or mutation of nursery rhymes Wiggle Wiggle, Handy Dandy, Under the Red Sky, Two by Two, and Cats in the Well. There's also the song Ten Thousand Men, which may or may not be some kind of twisted nursery rhyme. The song contains the line, None of them doing nothing your mama wouldn't disapprove. That's not a double negative, it's a quadruple negative. And for much of the song, Ten Thousand Men. It sounds like Dylan is making up the lyrics as the song is playing, and there are places in the song where the lyrics are so mumbled or garbled that it's impossible to make out what he's singing. Still, the song has a cool groove, and in those spots where Dylan does lock into some lyrics the song can be pretty interesting. It's hard to know what to make of this album. I think it's kind of an outlier, something like Street Legal, which we discussed in Episode 9. Many of Dylan's albums fall into a small pattern. Some people think you can always organize Dylan albums in groups of three, but I'm not sure that's the case. Still, there do often seem to be patterns of two or three or four albums that can be linked by various threads. Under the Red Sky is often lumped with Oh Mercy because they were released about a year apart And they're both very different from what came before, which would be the 80s records we talked about in episode 11, and also different from what came after, which would be the two acoustic albums of folk covers, Good As i Been to You and World Gone Wrong, and we'll get to those records shortly. And Oh Mercy really was such a special album and a true comeback. You'd think Dylan would have tried to maybe follow up or put out Another somewhat related album, but Oh Mercy and Under the Red Sky are really completely different albums. Very few connections between the two records, at least to my ear. They seem to be different in both conception and execution. As I'm thinking about it, Under the Red Sky might be one of Dylan's least significant or least memorable records. But it's not a bad album at all. It's a really entertaining album to listen to. And I think Born in Time is an absolute gem. Dylan hasn't yet managed to put out an album that doesn't contain at least one great song. After Under the Red Sky, Dylan took a break of just a little over two years before he released another album, which was called Good As I've Been to You, and that came out in November of 1992. And then, almost exactly one year later, Dylan released another album called World Gone Wrong. So two new albums, one year apart, Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong. And, for something radically different, I'd like to talk about both of those albums at the same time. They are related, probably more than any other two Dylan records, though of course there are some differences too. Both albums were recorded in Dylan's Garage Studio in Malibu, California. Both were recorded over a relatively short period of time, maybe days or a few weeks total, And both consist of older, popular songs, traditional folk music, and pre-war blues songs. Also, all of the songs are just Dylan on acoustic guitar and harmonica. You'd think people would have been overjoyed that Dylan finally gave them what they'd been begging for. Not only one completely acoustic album, but two in a row. And yet the reception for these albums, although positive, was fairly muted. Again, and I realize this is a broken record by now, People's acceptance quotient didn't quite sync up with Dylan's creative output, at least not at the moment these two records came out. So, Good As I've Been To You and World Gone Wrong, two albums of cover material, Just Dylan on acoustic guitar and harmonica. On both of these records, Dylan's guitar playing must be singled out. He strums and picks intricate melodies and rhythm patterns across a wide variety of tunes, and the interplay between Dylan's singing, guitar playing, harmonica, and the emotional meaning of the songs has never been tighter than as it is on these two albums. You probably want to know which album is better, or which album I think is better. I can't answer that. World Gone Wrong seems to be a more forceful record, stronger in its intention, But it's really hard to say for sure. Part of the reason that World Gone Wrong feels stronger is that the album's cover artwork is better, and Dylan wrote a wonderful set of liner notes for World Gone Wrong, which kind of prefigures the writing style that he deployed just later in writing Chronicles. Also, World Gone Wrong digs deep into lesser-known folk blues and is thus somewhat more mysterious while Good As I've Been to You contains some songs that are almost standards. Frankie and Albert, Sitting on Top of the World, Hard Times, written by Stephen Foster, and Tomorrow Night, which was covered by both Elvis Presley and bluesman Lonnie Johnson. And you gotta believe Dylan loves to find a song to cover where he can ride that line between Elvis and the deep blues. World Gone Wrong has a darker selection of tunes than Good As I've Been to You, that's for sure. The album is about death, murder, lust, and loneliness. I guess the standout songs might be the corrosive blood in my eyes and the saddest of the sad murder ballads called Delia. I want to jump back to Good As I have Been to You for a minute and talk about two songs from that album and another song that was recorded during the sessions for Good As I have Been to You but left off the record again for who knows what reason. That song is called You Belong to Me and it was a cover of a hit pop song From the early 1950s, the most popular version being sung by the female vocalist Joe Stafford. It's just one of the prettiest covers Dylan's ever done. Again, it demonstrates his spectacular ability to take a piece of standard material and elevate it into something really special. I wasn't able to find it on Spotify, so you'll have to search for it on YouTube or the soundtrack to Natural Born Killers, which is where it first appeared. Also, if you send an email to info at com and let me know you're interested, I'll send you a link to the song. It's a beautiful track. Anyway, as I mentioned, it was used to kind of a chilling effect by Oliver Stone in 1994 on the soundtrack for Natural Born Killers, but hasn't been released since then. And I remember I was sitting in the movie theater watching that movie the week it came out and suddenly started hearing Dylan's voice buried in the mix... There had been little warning or press that a Dylan song was in the film, so I was completely flabbergasted to hear it. Anyway, check it out if you can. Possibly one of the most heartbreaking renditions of an old song Dylan's ever recorded. The second-to-last song on Good As I've Been To You is the old cowboy song, Diamond Joe. And Dylan's version seems like a tribute to his old rambling buddy, Jack Elliott. And I'm just singling it out because it's such a cool song, and Dylan does such a great job with it. Finally, there's one more song that I want to talk about, from Good As I've Been to You. As many have mentioned before, the last song on a Dylan album can often seem to have a little extra significance. A lot of things with Dylan feel almost random, but many times the last song on a Dylan album seems to have been placed there for a reason to leave you with a certain feeling or impression and on good as i've been to you which is mostly a collection of americana and traditional music the last song is an old children's song and it's called froggy Went a courtin when i was about five years old we used to sing this song in school and it was my favorite song back then but the song that we sang was not nearly as long as the complete and epic version that dylan delivers If you don't know the song, it's about a frog who falls in love with a mouse, and the frog and the mouse plan to get married, and the song follows the preparations for their wedding and the wedding feast. I try not to use the word too often, but Dylan's evocation of this song approaches genius, turning a little ditty into this deeply felt and mysterious narrative. It's almost like he's turning a children's song into Desolation Row or Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. There's so much emotion and pathos layered into the recitation of the song. It's pretty fantastic. So, to sum up these two albums, again, they represented a change that most people weren't ready for or ready to embrace, but they're both very worthy of some deep listening. So, Dylan releases these albums in 1992 and 1993, and he keeps touring throughout those years and into 1994, and then he does a somewhat surprising thing, which is that he agrees to appear on the MTV series Unplugged, and performs a mostly acoustic set. It's terrific, and Dylan seems pretty relaxed about the whole thing. And then he packs up and goes back out on the road. And in the mid-90s, especially 1995, Dylan gives dozens of brilliant live performances that pretty much have been underappreciated or flown under the radar, except for diehard fans who've circulated bootleg tapes. Other than the Unplugged album, there have to date not been any official live releases from the second half of the 1990s, which is a real shame. I think one day we'll look back at these few years as the second golden age of Dylan concert performances. It's impossible to sum up the variety of things and songs he was doing, sometimes rocking, sometimes tender, just a supreme variety of digging deep into both his own catalog and many, many cover versions. One concert in particular has been kind of marked And that one has been written about extensively by Dylan expert Clinton Halen. And it's a show from Prague in the Czech Republic in 1995. And apparently the day before that concert, Dylan was so sick with the flu that he had to cancel the show. And on the night of this concert, he was still so weak that he couldn't hold his guitar. So he just stood with a microphone. And the set, which I'll provide a link to on the website, is just spectacular and Dylan seems to be ringing completely new meanings out of the set list, and it's a terrific performance. There's actually another concert from this period that I want to talk about. The best thing about creating this series, of broadcast, is that it's allowed me to dig back deeply into Dylan history and material, and I've been able to make many great discoveries for myself things that I didn't know or things I hadn't heard and I just have to say as I was researching this period of mid 90s live shows in preparation for this broadcast I came across a video of an entire concert two hours long from Dubuque Iowa on November 12 1996 and if I sound a little excited about this discovery it's because I am I'm sure many Dylan people know about this tape But I'm telling you right here, this is one of the greatest things you'll ever see. It needs to be witnessed on video. Dylan's playing a nice and loose set. The band is cooking and the crowd is into it. And then, about 40 minutes in, some young woman gets up on stage and starts dancing. Like those young women do sometimes. And Dylan more or less ignores her, and so does the security. And then she jumps off the stage and maybe a minute later... A guide climbs up on stage and starts gyrating around like those guys do. And then, without security ever intervening, for the next 90 minutes, a parade of people gets up on stage alone in pairs and threes. They get right up on stage and dance around and interact with Dylan. At first, it seems to be mostly teenagers, but then later on the older folks get into it as well. Dozens of women jump up on stage and hug and kiss Dylan while he continues playing without missing a note. Dozens of men shake his hand, pat him on the back. One guy jumps on stage, takes the hat off the guitar player's head, and then jumps back off the stage. One woman grabs drumsticks and starts dancing around the drum riser. It's totally over the top. What makes it so amazing is that Dylan is completely relaxed throughout and having the time of his life. He's interacting with all these people, smiling at him, nodding to him, it's really beyond my powers of description so i'll include a link on the website and i implore you to watch at least some of this incredible show and it just goes to show you there's always something new and amazing to discover in the world of dylan Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced in this broadcast, please check out the public playlists I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to get in touch and find links to some amazing stuff. There's also a Facebook page where I'll occasionally post some relevant material. Word of mouth is the only way to grow the audience for this series, so please share with your friends or anyone you think might be interested And social media is wonderful and all that, but don't forget your friends who might be off that grid. We have to keep human connections, not just social media connections, alive and kicking. Next episode, we'll look at another one of Dylan's powerful resurrections, this one coming out of a moment where he underwent a terrifying health scare and then released an album that kicked off his most sustained period of creativity and recognition to date. Until then, thank you for listening.